This is the Work Smart Hypnosis podcast, session number 43, a conversation with Jonathan Chase, part one. Welcome to the Work Smart Hypnosis podcast with Jason Lynette, your professional resource for hypnosis training and outstanding business success. Here's your host, Jason Lynette. Hey there, and welcome back. It's Jason Lynette. This is the Work Smart Hypnosis podcast. And if you're just joining me here, I'd share the intention behind this program. Really came about from attending several hypnosis conventions over the years. So whether it's NGH, HypnoThoughts Live, I just recently did uh, Mid-America Hypnosis Conference, the Hypnobirthing Conclave, local events as well, meetups and all of that. You know, here's my phrase. The pre and post convention stuff is really great. And if you're making the trip to any of these events, do yourself a favor and round out the trip with some more specialized training, whether it's pre or post convention. The workshops that are selected for these events are outstanding. Yet, in my experience, the really fun of it was what you would learn just by way of conversation, whether it's at the bar in the evening, in the hallways of the convention hotel, the stuff that you really just cannot structure, the stuff you really cannot plan, to really learn the ins and outs of how it is this one person really looks at hypnosis, and the work, the thought, the insight they really put into that. So really, this podcast here is a bit of a passion project, and I say that in a clever way of basically saying, this is also for me. And that's specifically why I reached out to Jonathan Chase. Jonathan and I reached out to each other and set the plan to talk for about 20, 30 minutes. And of course, that means now this is part one of a two-part series as we went on for an hour. First time actually chatting. So I want you to hear the immediate connection that was there and really the thinking that he puts into his work, and specifically more so in part two of this recording. You're going to hear the background to it in part one. But as we get into part two, you're going to hear about a project, and I've got to cheat here and get the name again, The Marvelous Mechanical Mesmerist, which is this production, this play that Jonathan is now a part of, he's helping to write, that is bringing hypnotized volunteers from the audience into the structure of a theatrical play. You know, look at the way that we talk about hypnosis for the most part. Here's the category of work with clients. Here's the category of work on stage. And really, this is just a whole different level of how to approach it that's just fascinating. And that's what prompted this conversation. We're going to jump right in. I would point you back to worksmarthypnosis.com. There's going to be several links on both parts one and two of the series with John Chase, including some videos, including some links, including some various resources to check out. Just a fascinating chat, a delightful experience getting to meet Jonathan Chase. Let's jump in. This is part one. When I first started, I probably spent, you know, something like a hundred grand over a five or a six year period going everywhere, following everybody. I begged money, I borrowed money. Maybe a hundred grand is an exaggeration, maybe something like 25 grand, mm-hmm. which in those days was management level yearly wages on getting enough information and learning my craft enough so that I could start running not crawling, yeah? Right, yeah. And I started running, and I'd earned that money back, 
and the same amount within the first 12 months because I'd asked the right questions to the right people, I badgered people, I virtually stalked people, <laughs> you know? And Ken Webster, who is one of the longest-running hypnotists in a single venue in the world. Yeah, I know of Ken. It's a battle, I think, between him and Anthony Coles, who's been doing it in their venue the longest, you know, I wouldn't like to say. But, but Ken's been doing Blackpool for many, many years. And if you listen to Ken's story, Ken went out to Spain, he learned to do stage hypnosis, he went out to Spain, he went out there for two weeks, stayed for two years, earned a lot of money being a stage hypnotist and in those days in Spain you know you could live like a king for 200 pounds a week he came back he went to the manager of the of his local big 2000 seat theatre and said I want to do a show here he said no sod off so he sat in front of his office for six weeks until the guy eventually <laughs> walked in one day and said oh for fuck's sake Ken you can have one night and that started his career yeah because he wanted it, yeah? Now, I look at it this way. Speaking from a client's point of view, would you want to walk into the office of somebody who really wants to be there? Or would you want to walk into the office of somebody who could afford to be there? Or would you want to walk into the office of somebody who thought it was a good idea, yeah? But wasn't prepared to put anything into it to get it. Now, I agree with you as much as... I put an advert of, I'm doing a training course, people come on it. And we do, we get about 50% of the people who are just hypno-curious because we actually advertise for the hypno-curious. Mm-hmm. But those hypno-curious are people who are planning on coming to do it. And they've been told that we're really, really good at starting people off, so that's why they've come to us. I share it's kind of like my filter on all the business stuff that I do is that I only can teach the stuff that I've actually done. Rather than teaching pipe dreams, rather than theories, rather than here's the current trend that I haven't yet tested. Yeah. It's to position myself as the guinea pig and then to show as I'm teaching it, well, here's how I did that. Which is why if you look carefully at all the materials that I put out there, everything's really the language of this is the roadmap behind what I did. It's the fun of over here, the business of making claims and having to back them up and I'm of the mind that, well, if you don't make claims, you don't have to back them up. But at the same time, here's the stuff that I've done. Though the challenge becomes, I can't always teach it the way that I did it because people don't often have the same mindset. I was the one that signed the big scary lease and went, okay, I have to make this work. Yeah. When other people may be more appropriate given their scenarios, given what's going on, to slowly ease into something. I came from a family where everybody was self-employed, and it was very much, if you're going to do it, you better do it right. Well, you know, maintaining your mind, Zoe Clues, I don't know if you're aware of Zoe, but she left the recording industry and decided she was going to be a hypnotherapist, and she thought, right, okay, I'm going to really need something to drive me to get this business going. So she went to Harley Street in London, which has got to be the, one of the world's most famous places, you know, for therapists and surgeons and doctors. And she hired the most expensive office she could afford. And then she thought, right, I've got to pay for that next month. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and and that, that drove her onwards. But she didn't want to go in. She didn't want to think, well, do you know what I'll do? I'll convert my spare bedroom mm-hmm. <laughs> first. 
you know, and it's sort of like I see this all the time in stage hypnosis because, like, if people ask me, John, really, what are you? I'm a, I'm a stage hypnotist. I'm an entertainer. I'm a performer. I'm a writer. You know, that's what I am mostly. And I see it all the time. You know, there's big, long discussions going on about what's the best audio to use and no discussions whatsoever at all of what am I actually going to say on my microphone mm-hmm. that's going to set me apart from everybody else. And I mean, when I started, I copied other people's acts the same way as everybody else starts, fair enough. But then I started to work with some comics, some great comics in, in the UK, maybe people like Ken Dodd that you've never heard of, but like over here are, are huge. You know, and I used to corner them in dressing rooms threateningly, you know, (laughs) saying, what, if you were a hypnotist, what would you do? What would you say? And it's right what you said. It's interesting what you said there, because there's this, I can only teach what I've done. And I love this. Oh, I only do this because it's fun. Right. So what are you going to do when you turn up to a gig that's, probably going to put you in front of another five or six people who can book you for big corporates and that, and you turn up with a flu, and you feel like you're going to vomit, your head's aching so much it's hard to think, your knees are weak, you're sweating like a pig, where do you find the, I'm going to have fun, to actually go in that dressing room, get changed, put some makeup on, which you never do, but it hides the sweat, Yes. Spray your throat with as much chemicals as you possibly can <laughs> so that you can talk for the next hour and a half nonstop. Go out there. Where do you find the smile from? Where do you find the good evening from? Because if you haven't got that, and if you don't think that it's going to sometimes be bloody awful and bloody hard work, then forget it because... All all you're going out there is you're going to have fun, but do you know, and I've seen this time and time again, Jason, in 50 years' time, you're still going to be doing high schools. You're going to be not heard of or your website won't be on the internet anymore because the opportunities that come along where you've had to really work hard because you really, really want it, not because you're having fun, but because you can't not do that, yeah? you've got to dig deeper than just having fun to do that. And I think that's why I'm going for the high ticket more and more now, because I find that the people who pay the high ticket are the people who can reach down and find more. It's the people who turn around to me and say, I want to do what you do, but I want to do it better. Mm-hmm. You know, and the people who've got the guts to say that, and the people who've got, right, well, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do it different. Well, you hit on a couple of things there. I I don't know if you know this, but I worked for several years in management for professional theaters. I wasn't the actor, director, designer. I was the stage manager organizing everything and making the creative people get along. I have nothing against SMs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, And the experience, though, was seeing people who would come in at the call time. The performance is 8 o'clock. They would show up at 730 and the term we use there was, before this TV show that's popular now, they were the walking dead. They showed up, they were sick, they were horrible, yet at 8 o'clock, stepped on stage, and you would have no idea. Yeah. And it's something, I mean, not to bring it to an esoteric level, but it's something that's going on in that person that 
I, I love the phrase, they're refusing to accept the premise that there's going to be something holding them back from that experience, that this is what I'm here to do in that moment. And just that work ethic that was there that, yeah, because they used to be the kid in the high school getting up on stage in the school play and having fun, it, it brings it to an entirely different level when here's the person. I mean, I heard one of them say one time, it doesn't matter how I feel. It's a sold out house. That's where I need to be. Mm. And the experience of just you have to make it work. It has to happen. As I said in my book, Deeper and Deeper, you know, I mean, I have worked some dives. I have worked some really terrible dumps in my time. Uh, <laughs> but it was money and it was your job, first and foremost. But wherever I worked, I always got changed. I always took a roadie. I always took a PA system. I always had the best of the best for whatever it was I was doing. I even worked um, in the old days, I even worked a couple of Hells Angels houses yeah. because they'd seen me, I did a bit around the rock circuit and they'd seen me on stage and they'd come up to you after a show and say, we couldn't come up on stage because we didn't want these idiots to see us prancing about, so you're going to come and do our house. <laughs> and it was said like that, you're going to come and do our house. Yes. And I'm not going into details, but like obviously they didn't, they wanted an over the top show. They wanted to let the hair down, you know, and do that. But even then, I changed. I said, well, where can I change my jacket? And the one guy said, well, you can leave that jacket down there. And I said, I'm not leaving it down here with you, rubbing bastards. Ben. <laughs> he just laughed. And, and he said, put it in a cupboard over here. I said, well, I've got to put my hypnotist coat on, otherwise I don't feel right. And he just laughed. And he said, oh, they're going to love you. <laughs> he said, I said, why? He said, because nobody else has had the guts to come in here and dress up. I love it. But I treat everywhere that I perform or present as the London Palladium, as the last show I'm ever going to do, and it's got to be the best one. And people think, oh, yeah, that's, an, you know, oh, and you're just saying that. But no, that's how I get through the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's my mentality. You know, people say to me, why are you so absolutely, fantastically brilliant? At least that's what I hear. Because I have to drive myself into that state of mind to go out there and perform 100%. Now, the thing is, people say that therapy is different. Not when you do it my way. I don't do therapy any different. I do therapy as a show. You know, in as much as the office hire is, is set up in the way that I want it, you know, the people are treated the way that I want. And I do it that way because they're paying for that. Well, it's so much of it is the, I mean, you go back to Mesmer and so much of the experience, so much of the expectation, the, the recognition that the entire process is about hypnotic suggestion, not just the, now that your eyes are closed, we're officially working. Yes, I talk to people, you must, you must smile at this because you must have talked to people who have done the training and they say, oh, this is so amazing. This is like lunchtime on day one, you know, and they're saying, this is so amazing. It took me 20 minutes before to hypnotize somebody. Now I can do it in a few seconds. And I said, yeah, well, what took you that long? And they said, well, you have to give them all the suggestions for relaxation. You're waiting for the breathing to slow down. And I said, is that it? Is that what you were taught? That all you've got to do is wait for the breathing to change, then you can read them the script. Now, you know and I know that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of courses out there, and this is what they're teaching as hypnosis. 
Yeah. Now that's scary. That's scary. I'm not saying that some of the psychotherapy they teach isn't useful. Of course it is. The NLP, the bits that were taken from hypnosis anyway, is useful. But when you see the suffix hypno in front of something, you expect hypnosis. Yes. And we did a rather interesting thing. I'm going to put it up on my new website. It's on my hypnosis installed DVD and get the plug in, you know. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go for it. It's on the bonus thing. But what Tim Box and, and Jules, our video guy, did was they went out to a London suburb, Camden, Camden Lock, and they just walked up to complete strangers and asked them what hypnosis was. And nearly every one of them, every single one of them, said it was mind controlled by somebody else. And then they come into the hypnotherapy situation. The first thing they get told is that all those years of expectation they've got building and everything isn't what they're going to experience. And I look at that and think, well, if you're a hypnotist, if they want mind control, that should be fairly easy to set up. And then they walk away saying, hey, do you know something? I was hypnotized. And the number of people that I get ring who ask me for consultations, who ask me for They've nearly all been to hypnotherapists before and been relaxed. And when I say to them, well, did you feel hypnotized? Well, no. But they were very nice. Yeah. Yeah. And did you ask for your money back? Well, no, they were very nice. You know? Yeah, there's an expectation that's there. They're expecting hypnosis. So to give them that hypnotic experience, whether it's a moment of phenomenon or anything that's going to satisfy that need... Otherwise, you know, I'd say it as you could have done the most perfect, flawless therapeutic process in the hypnotherapy side. But if they're leaving with that phrase of, well, I felt relaxed, I guess something happened. You've missed one of the most crucial elements. I'm not saying it's not going to get results because many of these people do get results. Yet there's a very clear element I love the way you've said it. The word hypno is at the beginning of it. They're expecting at least a hypnotic component. Well, do you know, I always say, I always say, you know what, the last thing you do is the first thing they remember. Yes. And they are leaving with the world's greatest hypnotist as far as they're concerned. Because they're leaving with the hypnotist that got them in the shit in the first place and the reason that they're sitting opposite you in your consulting room. Because they've been hypnotizing themselves that they've got no confidence for their whole life. Mm-hmm. And if you don't convince them they've been hypnotized and that a change has happened, when they go out, they're going to go back to doing exactly what they were doing before. And do you know something? They're bloody good at it. <laughs> they're very good at it. They've been doing it a long time. And you have to change that part of the mind. Well, there's so much of this process, especially bringing it to the hypnotic pre-talk, that the only purpose of that segment, and I've heard this taught elsewhere, the only purpose of that segment is to dispel any fears or misconceptions of the process. And I think while that may be valid, what's more important is building the expectation for the positive hypnotic experience. And if anything, folding into that component of here's what's going to happen, here's what you're going to experience – And just breaking that expectation. I found that what you just mentioned about they're already hypnotizing themselves. The moment that I can reframe what they've already been doing as a skill that they're not using properly, that just bypasses all of the pre-talk mumbo jumbo that we've been trained over the years. And you're already an expert at this. I'm going to show you how to do it better. And to let that become that hook that the process hinges upon It just dissolves away the fears and misconceptions, for the most part, in my experience. And it also shows that they're utilizing a resource. They're just not using it properly. 
Do you know, that's why I'm a crap therapist. <laughs> because all I do is bang them under and tell them to stop it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that works. You know. <laughs> the joke that I sort of build as the subtext of my stop smoking process with clients is how deeply hypnotized do you have to get somebody to just tell them, look, all you have to do is nothing. That That's it. Just do nothing. It's easy. But how deeply hypnotized do you have to get them where that's no longer an offensive statement? Mm. Where they realize that's the simplicity, that's the comfort of it. And in many ways, they're already an expert at doing nothing in so many other parts of their life. Just spread the nothing around to other parts of the life. See, my style is slightly different because I come from a stage hypnosis point of view. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and even on stage hypnosis, you know, I do not spend 20 minutes trying to persuade people that hypnosis is nice and comfortable because I know that there's only going to be, in a theatre with 2,000 people, there is going to be 15 people max who are going to be any good. And of those, five are going to be fantastic. Mm. Now, between you and I, I just want the five yeah. to be fantastic. So yeah, I've been impressed upon that. Some of the photos and videos you've got, the smaller group of volunteers you've got up there. I go straight for the jugular, you know, and say, look, you're going to come up here. I'm going to make a fool of you. So if you haven't got a sense of humor, don't come. <laughs> yeah? Got to love honesty. You, you're going to be totally under my control. If I want to remove your clothes, I, I will do. I will not remove anybody's clothes on stage because God knows what he's wearing under, under those jeans. <laughs> I go out there and I am very direct and very forceful. But actually, in consultation, I'm the same because they've already been on the Internet. They've seen me. They know my style. And they are buying into my style, not into the therapeutic process. They're buying Jonathan Chase. Well, I think so many hypnotists in business, they call it talking someone out of the sale, someone who's ready to buy something and then the salesperson keeps talking and ends up killing the sales process when the person was already ready to buy. I think a lot of hypnotists are talking people out of the change. Well, I can't do this. Well, I can't do that. This isn't what's going to happen. You're not kidding. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if somebody says, what's hypnosis? Well, it's mind control. Right, well, I'm going to take control of your mind then. Don't worry about it. And if they say, oh, I'm a little bit scared, say, good, don't worry about it. Because I want them emotional. I want them angry. I want them to come up on stage and say, go on, then I dare you, hypnotize me. Because if they're in that mood, number one, they totally believe they can be hypnotized. Because if they don't believe they can't be hypnotized, they don't come on stage threatening. Yeah, <laughs> You can't be scared of something you don't believe in. Now, we know that phobics are scared only of what they believe in, not of the thing itself. So that process works perfectly in reverse for the stage hypnotist. If somebody comes up and their knees are knocking together, they're gone. In fact, it's harder to keep them out of hypnosis than it is to put them in. And they're usually absolutely brilliant. And I work that way very much on a therapeutic situation. Like I say in my book, don't look in his eyes. I think I've plugged them all now. Is that okay? That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's only awkward if we do them all at once. So that's fantastic. (laughs) Amazon.com, Jonathan Chase. Um, Exactly. (laughs) But no, a lot of the time, my consultations, I don't do therapy. I'm not a hypnotherapist. I've never claimed to be one. When I'm doing consultations with people, when I'm doing hypnosis with people one-on-one, a lot of the time it's very much a case of sit down. What do you think hypnosis is? You're wrong. 
Because mm-hmm. I, I don't know what your hypnosis is going to be. And what we've got to do is find out how good a hypnotist you are. Now, I know I'm an absolutely brilliant hypnotist. How do I know that? Well, I've done it 70,000 times and it's worked. How many times have you done it? And they'll say, well, sometimes they'll say one or two, but very often they'll say none. I say, right, so who's the expert here? Me. So I'm not going to ask you what hypnosis is or anything because you don't know. So let's just try some things and see what sort of hypnosis you can do. Yeah? Nice. And I'll do four or five inductions. By that time, they've either been reinduced. I hate fractionation. It's the wrong word. It's totally inaccurate. They've been reinduced about four or five times, or they haven't gone at all. And we now know that I either do some NLP, do some genosis, or, you know, send them off to somebody and recommend them to somebody I don't like because they're hard to hit guys. <laughs> And the thing is, everything that I do in my marketing, everything that I do, the way I set myself up and everything I do in the high price and high ticket and everything like that is designed to make sure as much as possible that the person I've demographed to be in that chair is the right person. Right. Now, I would love, I would sincerely love to think that I could help everybody. But it's like I'm in show business. We're putting together a new show for Edinburgh. Now, I would love to think that I could go up to Edinburgh Fringe and make everybody, you know, all two and a half million visitors that are going to be there over the time of the festival. I would like to think that I can entertain every single one of them. And I know I can't because I've been an entertainer for too long. And I will know for a fact that no matter how big or how small your audience is, there's somebody in there who will not be entertained by what you do. Mm-hmm. And why there is this thing in therapy to think that you can help everybody that walks in through your door, I don't get that. That's wrong. It's just experientially wrong. Because if you talk to anybody who's been in the business for more than 10 years and they say they've never, ever, ever had a failure, I'll show you a liar. Because... Our failures, we've all had our people who try as hard as we can. It just didn't work for. I mean, one of my very first people, when when I started doing consultations, one of my very first people, the fifth or sixth person, I saw them twice and then they committed suicide. And that was a good teaching lesson to me, that you don't win them all. So you shouldn't assume you should win them all. So I think what you should do is set yourself up so the, the people that you see are more likely going to be the ones that you can help, either because you've got an empathy with that person or you understand their condition better than most people or you just resonate more with that type of person. I think that's one of those things, too, that uh, I've got a class this past weekend that this topic already came up, and it was the chat of I'm the biggest proponent of this stuff, the biggest supporter of it, I will argue with people about how wonderful it is, yet there were stories we were sharing of, yeah, this person called me and I referred to this other hypnotist. This person called and I referred to this psychiatrist. And to not look at this as the end-all, be-all, it's it's definitely a very useful tool. I love the metaphor that you can't go to the home good, the home supply store and buy a hammer and then try to return it the next day and say it didn't work. Yeah. Sometimes it's just not the right tool for the job. In many cases, it can be. It can be a wonderful adjunct and supplement and really, many times, the one tool that is absolutely needed. 
yet to also not paint it as the magic pill for everything. That's where we end up hypnotizing ourselves and believing that we can help somebody when sometimes there may be a more viable solution for that individual. Yeah, it's like the stage hypnotist who thinks that they can just walk into any situation and have a fantastic show every single time. You, you know, that none of them are going to be tough, that none of them are going to need work. Like I said once before, you know, you've got to be careful. You can think you're very, very good, but you can't think you're very, very God because, you know, you can't change everything. Yeah. And you can't do it 100% like that. That's what worries me about, well, we know that there's unethical trainers out there, but there's unethical therapists out there who are just trying to sell their gear and sell their stuff, especially recordings. And none of them are turning around and saying, well, you know, this recording stands probably, if you use it exactly how I tell you to, it stands a 30 or 40% chance of working. Because... I'm not there with you. I can't see how you're using it. I don't know you. I don't know your condition. Your condition might have variables that I haven't included in my recording, <laughs> you know, yeah. and the stuff like that. And there just seems to be so few honest people in the business. The thing is, I don't know how you feel about this, but I always say to people who come on my courses, one thing you should never, ever do is insult the intelligence of the people who are paying your wages. And I think that happens too much with the world of hypnosis and what we tell other people about it. You know, we're insulting their intelligence in thinking that they don't get that it might not work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then we get to the levels when you get people start saying, oh, well, the world's greatest hypnotists were Hitler and, and Jesus. And you go, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you think, yeah, hang on a minute. <laughs> Um, so is that your, is that your ideal client no we're not going there <laughs> we're not going there thanks for listening to the work smart hypnosis podcast at worksmarthypnosis.com hey it's jason lynette and one last quick thing i hope you'd enjoyed this brief series here with jonathan chase part two is going to come at you next week on schedule and i'd encourage you to do this i want these interviews i want these programs to make you think about hypnosis i want them to help you to interact with how it is you were trained and how you approach your process and in many ways it perhaps might help you to define your own style as well so i'd love to hear your feedback specifically the best way to help us out head over to itunes locate the page for the work smart hypnosis podcast and leave your positive feedback there that helps us to bump up our downloads helps us to increase the appearance and as always it just makes me happy head over to the work smart hypnosis page over on itunes and leave your review i look forward to seeing what you've got to say